Welcome to another episode of Horrorversary. Is this is your first time listening in? Oh, welcome, first of all. We understand that this is a time where everybody's checking out podcasts and everything, so we like you giving a chance. If you're a returning member, you, you know to wait about five seconds while I explain everything to everyone else. But very simply, Horrorversary is a podcast that celebrates horror movies celebrating anniversaries. Now, we don't go for any of the little piddly, hey, it's 25 years. Hey, it's 45 years. No, we stick hard and fast just with the major milestones, the 10s, the 20s, 30s, 40s, and onward. Because at basically any point that you look at film history, there's a horror movie that deserves your attention and deserves celebration and reappreciation and just, you know, deserves people to seek it out. Sometimes they're going to be films that you absolutely know of and it's one of your favorites of all time. And sometimes maybe it's a film you haven't necessarily heard of. Now, one of the things that we're doing right now is kind of a little bit different. The movies that we're, we're charting are some that people maybe haven't watched in several years, or maybe they have kind of, you know, decided they didn't want to see it necessarily. Of course, on the last episode, we did Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, and in the future, we're going to have a Christmas Evil episode. We're going to have an episode on Piranha 3D. We're going to have an episode on Graveyard Shift. So we are going for wacky and weird films right now that you might not normally think that we're going to shine a light on. So we want to give them that attention, but in a joyous way, as opposed to stripping them down. Now, because of the film that we're talking about today, we do have to mention something that happened in the news recently, and that was unfortunately the passing of Stuart Gordon, probably one of the most unsung horror directors. While you will definitely hear lots of people mention that he was one of the masters of horror, he's not exactly that household name that everyone, you know, knows. If you're somebody who's into genre films, if you're somebody who's into horror and it's steeped in your blood, then you definitely know him. But it's a huge loss, especially when you look at like major titans who've passed away recently, uh, like Max von Sydow, who was in his 90s, or having Kirk Douglas, who was past 100. 72, by comparison, seems really young. And of course, we had to mention him because he made the original Reanimator and worked with the producer and director of the film that we're doing today, Bride of Reanimator. So... When we bring our guest on in a minute, we're going to talk about that first before getting into the actual film, because we definitely think that Stuart Gordon deserves all the love in the world, and his passing is truly, truly a huge blow. But like I said, we're talking about Bride of Reanimator, and now some people might go, wait, 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 are you really sure that that's okay on the date? Because you're supposed to be doing movies that are intense. Well, here's the thing. If you go online, you're going to see several different numbers that get attached to Bride of Reanimator. If you go onto Letterboxd, it'll tell you that was 1989. If you go other places, it's necessarily going to say like 1992. And here's the thing. If you go on to simply IMDb, you're going to see a whole bunch of dates that are listed in the 90s. You're going to see that it premiered in France at a film festival, was in the UK at another film festival. It actually gets a video release in Japan that year. In 1990, it also gets released in the UK in the middle of the summer of that. And then you have it showing up at the Toronto Film Festival. You have it showing up at Stages. You have it released theatrically in France in 1990. So that's why I wanted to do that. Yes, it might not come out in America until 1991, but the majority of releases that it had puts it at 1990. So... We, we try to think globally and not just locally. So we don't want to go just by what it says in the U.S. We want to say overall. 
And it's a Bride of Reanimator. So how can you not talk about it? So the fact is, when we get into it... Okay, that was my fault. I was talking nothing about dates and just dates in, in general. And I'm not talking about, you know, the fruit or whatever that is, the dates. No, no, no. We're talking about a great guest today. And I'm so excited to have this person on. This person is somebody who is another very, very, very hardworking individual on the internet. And if you don't know who they are, well, I, I, I'm just going to leave them to list off the myriad of places that they've done writing or they've done podcasts because it's just that, that's that's all I have to say about this individual. There's somebody that I'm very glad to have on the show. There's somebody that I've been talking to online for a while, was lucky enough to meet them last year and am just happy to bring on this individual. Now, I know it sounds like I'm building up, but it, truly, these guests that I'm having on are people that I want you know, to, to have time to shine in the sun. There are people that you might know, there are people that you might not know, but you should, once this episode is over, definitely know who Stephanie Crawford is. So please bring a warm, warm horrorversary welcome to Stephanie Crawford. How are you doing, Stephanie? Wow, a lot better after that introduction. Hello. <laughs> Thank that, you. That, that's what I try to do. But but now this is your moment. Take a moment here to let people know where they can find your writing and what podcasts that you've been involved with. Okay. Well, the main thing is probably the Screamcast, which I'm a co-host on. Um, and I'll, uh, you know, a lot like this one, if you ask me onto your podcast and just let me chat about movies, I'll probably show up. <laughs> Um, I do just the discs uh, with Brian Sauer pretty frequently. And with my writing, um, I've been published with Fangoria. I do quite a bit with Daily Grindhouse. Um, I'm, I've done columns with Dread Central and a little bit of Light Disgusting. And, you know, I'm just like anywhere I'm invited, I'll wander in there and do something goofy. I think that's the most humble thing you can say when you're like, yeah, I just kind of show up wherever after you, you know, ramble off Fangoria, Bloody Disgusting, Dread Central, Daily Grindhouse, like places that lots of people online really respect and appreciate or, and kind of wish that they had, could have a chance to write for you, those places. And you're like, yeah, I sometimes do stuff there. Well, I after you said I was very hardworking, I almost wanted to ramble off all the dumb game apps I have on my phone <laughs> right now, <laughs> but I restrained myself. I, I, I think that people would actually find that informative since so many people have time on their hands now. They'd be like, oh, yeah, that's a game that I should probably play so that I can you know waste another two hours not lose my mind. Yeah, well, I will say uh, anything that le lets you make a cake is very relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. There you go. Now, I, I mentioned at the beginning, um, Stuart Gordon. And so what did Stuart Gordon mean to you? Was he a director that, that you loved? Was he somebody that you feel like you need to watch more of his work? Oh, I was absolutely a big fan of his, though. Uh, actually, in this past week after his passing, I started catching up on some of his lesser known films, especially later in his career. He kind of moved away from the uh deep entrenched gory horror genre into more noir crime stories. Um, and, you know, he kind of kept his interest in people transforming, people hitting their limit, mm. uh, just a little less uh, fantastically. But no, I, I've always been a huge reanimator fan. I've, he's, uh, I think a lot like Toby Hooper, 
they have such a distinct style and never really, like you mentioned, never fully got their due. And when you really dig into their filmography, it's like, oh my God, like we all underestimated you. I'm so sorry. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, I think the saddest thing about this when these people pass, people always want to see, you know, what was one of the last things that they were working on. Um, and you usually see that there's the weird taper off where they're kind of forced into uh, the, the VOD uh, market or today's VOD market. Of course, the money is completely different than what it used to be. And I think in some cases, some of those directors who had their heyday in like the 80s and 90s that were making movies that were straight to video might have had more of a budget than than some of them have when it comes to genre efforts nowadays. So you see them trying to flex their muscles and go into to something else just to keep working and, and stay re um, relevant. And when you see how much it tapers off and what they're working on, like you, you feel a little bit sadder than just like we've kind of done a disservice to these directors who were so huge back in the day. Fully. I mean, if you hit it big, like right now, Jordan Peele is, um, thankfully and rightfully getting endless opportunities. But for a lot of people, especially as they age out, you really have to love genre and not just horror, but sci-fi or fantasy. Um, it's such a, it can be so hard if you aren't the hot thing right then, uh, especially to have a decades upon decades long career. Um, you really need to have that kind of crazy fire within yourself to push through it because it doesn't seem like Hollywood is particularly kind to people like that. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the comment that I've made, and it's not a bad comment, but it was, it's, um, it's kind of showing where your career can go and what can happen to you is that the, um, what's it called the, the two that I always pop into my mind is that Joe Dante uh, directed some episodes of the revamped Hawaii Five-O. I didn't know that. Yeah. And the, so he's the one that goes in that direction in my mind. And then uh, Chuck Russell, of course, doing The Scorpion King in 2002 and then doing I Am Wrath with John Travolta in 2016. You know, who can predict where our well, I know, but I'm but but I mean, you you brought up a good point with mentioning Jordan Peele and and how big he is in the public eye and stuff, and because of how high up he started, that I I don't think that there's a chance that he'll ever be at that point because of how filmmaking um, is today, and maybe because he's got a couple of the Academy Awards. Uh, but I, I don't think that we'll see Jordan Peele um, also directing 10 episodes of Hawaii Five-0 at the end of his career. True. And with both uh, Stuart, Gordon, <laughs> Stuart Gordon and Toby Hooper, the bulk of the most active part of their careers is pre-internet. And yeah. now it's much easier for us to recommend things, stream things, keep things alive. Even if a film is 40, 50 years old, it can feel fresh and vibrant. And um, so I do feel like those who are coming up now, uh, you know, we'll, we'll need to see where it bears out. But that feels like a huge boon. Yeah. Their legacy. But, and I, th I think what's also interesting about some of these um, 
directors, the older directors that we're talking about, is that they are getting this reprieve when it comes to anniversary auditions of discs. And that I think that certain filmmakers who are coming out nowadays in 20, 30 years from now won't have the uh, the Scream Factory or the the Arrow releases that have the fervor that, that we do when it come when it came to like you know, having Reanimator and and having Bride of Reanimator coming out on Arrow and having all these movies, you know, that that show up and these giant packages where people are like, oh, I gotta see the making of this, you know, I gotta see all these interviews. That <laughs> right. I I, th- I think some of the movies will still be like really well respected and they'll like them, but they're they're tr- you see movies that are hitting those points earlier now that I that. They're not you don't have the people who are clamoring, you know, in 20, 30 years saying, oh, I need the most pristine version of this movie, which I think says a lot about these directors. Yeah, I, it, it's interesting and I'm looking forward to it. I kind of foresee myself as like an 80 year old woman shaking my Blu-rays at kids like you don't <laughs> understand. <laughs> but it works. It works. I, I mean, physical media is is great. However you can watch these movies is great. I, I saw Bride of Reanimator today on Tubi, of all places. I couldn't find my Blu-ray, and so I tried to see where it was streaming, and it, it showed that it was on Tubi. So I turned it on thinking, oh, no, I didn't ask Steph if, if she's watching uh, the director's cut or the regular version because Tubi's probably going to be just the regular one. And then to my surprise, Tubi... A free streaming platform, not a sponsor, but just a, a free streaming platform had the director's cut version of it. No, I, I love them. I always want to call them Tubby, but it is Tubby. <laughs> we can um, call them so, Tubby. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I do have to do a well, actually. It's the unrated cut. It's unrated not cut, sorry. a director's cut. Sorry, um, unrated. Th- no, this is why we have Steph here. Don't worry, everybody. <laughs> I know uh, Brian Usna specifically said, he's like, I'm okay with the R-rated cut, you know? It's nice seeing the gore put back in, but, you know, I don't mind it. Well, we'll we'll get into the gore aspects and everything, but of course we are talking about uh, Brian Usna, and we're talking about Bride of the Animator from 1990. Now... If you're somebody who's never listened to this show before, we have a very simple setup. We bring on this guest and we have them choose a movie that they want to gush about. It's about their love and passion for this film and what makes this movie special. To get to the heart of that, we have five basic questions that we ask every single person who comes on to the show. And then as the conversation develops, we go into different tangents and different directions just so we can get the heart of what it is that makes this movie so special. So the very first question that we ask everybody is, do you remember the first time that you saw Bride of Reanimator? I do, but it's a little bit of this of a story. I hope that's okay. That's why we have you on. It makes it interesting. <laughs> well, I didn't say it was an interesting story. Just that it was a story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, hit us with it either way. So when I first started getting into horror and I finally wore my parents down enough, um, I just went in head first and I started ordering a bunch of old Fangoria magazines off of eBay. And one of them I got was uh, it featured the bride on the cover. And it was amazing because it was a full shot of uh, the makeup trachea showing everything. Um, it was this great in-depth look on the film and I would just stare at the photos and this makes it sound like I don't know it was like back in the 80s it wasn't (laughs) but um this is like before the blu-ray and everything 
And I would just uh, read the stories and stare at the photos and just think to myself, I can't wait to see this because my uh, local video stores never seemed to carry it. And then I finally, I think it was a Suncoast video. They had the Pioneer release that's in the green case. And I was finally able to, uh, I was able to see it and I loved it. But um, I don't know if you can relate to this, but there are certain <laughs> things that I love but in the back of my mind, I know that the experience I had leading up to it kind of colored that. Mm-hmm. So I'm not being quite as critical as I might be otherwise. And I think that was the experience, like kind of building it up in my brain from these gory behind the scenes shots of the film. I, I think I think that is fair. I mean, I can understand the worry in being in there, but I mean the goriness that you have with it and then hearing the stories of like how they did it and stuff like that just I think adds to the experience in this case because I mean we'll get into it as we go on more but I know that this is kind of a divisive movie and you have the people who like it as a whole the people who like it because of the effects and people who like it because of the fun and so I think that if if you have that background information on how things were made then you're watching it with a deeper appreciation so you're kind of watching it on another level which i i think there's plenty of movies when you're able to have that relationship with them um that that adds to the experience so i don't think that's bad at all all right well thank you i feel much better <laughs> and, <laughs> and for, I, I was gonna I, say for for anyone young who's out there when she mentioned suncoast video that's an actual store that you used to be able to go to in a mall and buy movies, and they would have every type of film you could think of, just like uh, Barnes or just like Borders. Actually, it's dead now. But back in the day, we had numerous different video stores that you could go to uh, to to buy things from, and they'd have you know various TVs at every single corner of the store that that had some movie that was playing on a loop. And sometimes it might be something like Bride of Reanimator if it was later in the evening. I lucked out because Suncoast Video, which was always in malls, at least over here on the West Coast, um, very expensive. They pretty much (laughs) charged MSRP, and I found it in the use section. And I love it because it was like a reagent green case. And when I think back to it, I just imagine it glowing to me at the shelf. And in slow motion, I grab it. (laughs) <laughs> um, might be a little hyperbole in that memory but it feels that way well i mean you could go on to etsy right now and you can get um, a retro uh, vhs lamp that people make where it's it's made uh, to look like the old vhs tape and the little label that you would have on the front of it for you know reanimator bride of reanimator or any other movies and then where you would see where the tape actually was, you can uh, choose a color, and they do have a special reagent green color that they do if you're getting uh, either Reanimator or Bride of Reanimator. That's a little uh, stand-up lamp that you can get. That's so cool. And apparently you can put a price on my childhood. So. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's seventeen ninety nine if you want batteries or 27 95 if you want to use a plug-in wow do you make these or do you just have like 30 of them in your house no i was just randomly looking i was up. at the ready <laughs> i was i was looking up stuff earlier today for for bride of reanimator and then just happened to see it 
on on like one of the things to click on Google. And I'm like, how did you know that I would randomly possibly want something like this? <laughs> oh, you don't want to know how Google knows. <laughs> no, I very much don't want to know. Now, the second question is a moment where after Steph answers it, we'll, we'll basically have a pause in everything. And that's because in order to discuss this movie fully and freely, you definitely have to get into spoiler territory. So when she answers this question, we're going to have a moment to pause so that if you haven't seen the film, you can go see it. Otherwise, you can keep on listening if you've seen the movie many times over or if you don't care that people are spoiling it and you just want to hear, you know, the wonderful passion that people have. So the second question is, for the uninitiated, in as few words as possible, describe the plot of Brighter Reanimator. Oh, boy. I kind of love that you mentioned people who don't care if it's spoiled because the plot is almost incidental in this yes. movie. <laughs> yes. It's very much about the visuals. Uh, okay. So we are a hefty handful of months after the events of the original Reanimator. And we have uh, Herbert West, uh, Jeffrey Combs, and he's still working with uh, Dan Kane, uh, who's played by Bruce Abbott. And they are in the middle of a Peruvian war. They're uh, working uh, as medics. And that's just like a free buffet <laughs> to Herbert <laughs> West of body parts. Uh, but one thing leads to another war's kind of crazy and they can't stay there. So they land back at the Miskatonic, uh, university hospital and it's, they're pretty much, uh, back to their old tricks. Uh, we, we have some new characters come in and now their basement is just a wall away from, um, I forgot the name of it, but you know, it's like, it's like a, yeah, it's some type of like mausoleum or ossuary yeah, type exactly. place. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, it's, they're further along in their relationship where um, West is even more manic and <laughs> feeling even more evil godlike. And Dan is, I don't know, I feel like he's so emotionally vulnerable and West is so ready to take advantage of that. He's just letting himself get talked into a lot of things and... That runs into feelings he has for a patient at the hospital. Um, and she is played by oh, Kathleen Kinmont. Yes, who's amazing in it. Uh, Gloria, and she's uh, she ends up dead and she ends up reanimated, but they needed a few more parts. So we'll 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 get onto that from there. I think that's a yeah. There's so many subplots, and and then there's a guy <laughs> who killed his wife, and then there. Hold on! Oh, don't and... don't no no. You're, you're going too far. I gotta I gotta I gotta <laughs> reel you back in here for a moment. Okay, so this is the point. This is the second week in a row where where somebody's accidentally said uh, something that's critical to the to like the third act of the plot on accident. Um, so we'll take a pause right here. We'll give you I a moment. The crazy reanimator boys are back and kookier than ever. There you go. Just cut out everything I said before that. Okay, that was your chance to pause. There, there you go. There you go. We we gave you a moment, literally enough time to pause it and then come back. I mean, you probably had to have like a trigger finger at the very end there, but it's okay. We got it. Everything's good. Um, now the third question really starts to get into to like 
what it is that's special about this movie for you. Because it, it's literally, what is it about this movie that's helped it stay relevant for, you know, the past 30 years? Well, for me personally, it's a combination of things. Uh, when I was getting into horror films, I was also very interested in special effects makeup. And it's just a showcase. It's headed by Screaming Mad George, who is incredible. He's this punk rock Japanese guy. And he looks pretty much the same now, except he has shock white hair, which is incredible. I love him. And uh, and he did Society, famously, with Yuzna. Um, Don't. Thank you. Here, here we are. We're, we're at the end of March. And I can officially cross it off the books again because somebody has mentioned society and it's back in my head. So I, I guess this is the right place for us. It's going to happen. <laughs> um, but Robert Kurtzman from KNB also worked hev- heavily into it. And it's um, it really is kind of kids taking over the candy shop when you watch it. And if I, I feel like if you have any level of interest in horror special effects makeup, Especially if you're interested in uh, kind of older techniques and pre-CGI incorporation, this is so much fun. Um, this oh is God, really it's... just sticking random body parts together yeah. and well, the, letting them go. Like the funny thing about when you look into like who worked on it is it's it just a cavalcade of like uh, amazing people because there were the two that you mentioned. Uh, of course, I'm going to forget their names but the rest of K&B is involved with it and then you had uh, John Carl Buechler involved as well so like you just have these these greats and titans when it comes to just practical effects just all going hog wild but the interesting thing is for another podcast recently um, I was asked to come on for a tournament that uh, the guys at Nightmare Junkhead were doing the uh, Into the Mouth of March Madness And they had me on for the 1990 bracket. And so this works out perfectly because two of the films that I had to watch for that was um, one of them was Frankenhooker. And then one that they said I might have to watch, but they they weren't sure about like what was going to make it past the first round was Nightbreed. And like when you when you watching like the third act of this movie, you're definitely getting elements of Frankenhooker and Nightbreed mixed with with um, Bride of Reanimator. So 1990 just has all these completely insane and wonderful um, practical effects, just showcases for all these these great individuals. No, it was a beautiful time for Monster Kids. I think Yuzna himself mentioned that he saw some Nightbreed in the third act there, which was really cool. Um, But other than that, I think it's really funny. I think it's bonkers. Um, They they didn't have a long time for the script. Um, So they're almost making it up as they went. A lot of it was made up as they went. And I feel like you can feel that in the best way. Instead of it feeling, it, it, it doesn't feel cynical, which is very important to me in films like this. It really does feel like a bunch of like very enthusiastic people who are very talented, uh, but kind of working around the clock, just trying to make a very crazy concept work. And I'm very attracted to that. That makes up for a lot of other weaknesses for me. And I think that is 
that that was something that I was noticing upon the rewatch is that there's there's an energy that Yusna brings to the proceedings where he's just moving everything along that there might be you know glaring plot holes uh, general inconsistencies or moments that don't seem like they would work if it was stretched out but because he's keeping things going at all times whether it's uh you know Dan breaking down and being on the verge of crying various different times if it's Jeffrey Combs just being amazing and chewing all the scenery as Herbert whether it's you know the the little um hand eyeball thing that's that's crawling around there there's something always on the screen to to keep you engaged so that you're not thinking about the little things in it and and I do think that that sense of fun is giant in it yeah this it could easily get too dark because there's some nasty mean stuff in this um but then in the next scene there'll be some kind of crazy slapstick so it it, it keeps a nice balance I think now, th- this is a completely separate question that, that from the ones that we normally um, ask, but we have to bring it up with this being a sequel um, and having mm-hmm. used to be somebody who produced Stuart Gordon's reanimator and you've got most of the same cast. Is is there what do you think are the big differences between the two films? I would say just tone and maybe the original reanimator reanimator is a chaotic movie it's also very funny it's also very strange but um stuart gordon was a much more experienced director when he made that than yuzna was when he made bride of reanimator and gordon was also very well known for being wonderful with actors he just spoke their language and i think uh, they had a more stream streamlined plot with the first one. So I think it's a lot easier for most people to watch. And, you know, I think the cast had more cohesion. I think that core with uh, Bruce and Jeffrey and Barbara Crampton, um, I think they just gelled so well. And I think uh, as, along with David Gale. Um, and in this one, it, the cast is great, but you can, along with the rest of the chaos, it almost feel you can kind of feel like they didn't have as much time with each other. Um, so I, I do think it, it's a worthy sequel, but I don't. I think of Reanimator as the high achieving older brother, and the bride is kind of like the messy but really smart, but every under everyone underestimates her little sister. But I, th- I think that's a good thing. If you're, if you're saying that it's, you know, it, it's underestimated, then it shouldn't be thrown into the camp of a sequel that people don't like, but one that maybe more people should revisit, do you think? Absolutely. And I really like to tell people, check it out for the first time, because I do hear that a lot. Uh, it's it's getting less. Uh, as time goes on, a lot like Halloween 3, people are coming around to it. Um, but I hear a lot like, oh, I heard it was bad or I heard it was stupid. And it's like, no, no, no. Just, you know, just keep in mind they didn't have as much time. <laughs> um, and it's a little bit more fly at the seat of your pants. It has more fantasy elements. Um, but I feel like if you're okay with it not being a carbon copy, um, oh, it's like a treasure trove. A really weird, gooey treasure trove. (laughs) 
I, I do think that's perfect. Here in Kansas City last year at uh, the Alamo Draft House, this was a movie that uh, me and the creative director uh, chose for a Terror Tuesday showing. And we had everybody, of course, you know, raise their hands for who was seeing it for the first time. And, and this was a case where about, uh, I'd say, 85 to 90 percent of the auditorium raised their hands. But afterwards, everybody was like, I don't know why I slept on this movie. This was a lot of fun. So I, I think if people just give it a chance and 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 move away from um, the stigma that comes with sequels. I mean, I, I don't want anybody to get mad at me. Everybody has their own opinion. But if you have to choose a movie out of the series, it's beyond reanimator that that people are always wary of, even the people who've seen it. Yeah, I remember originally watching it on the Sci-Fi channel and I was like, this isn't reanimator. What is this? <laughs> And revisiting on Blu-ray, I have so much more affection for it. But I do feel like Brad is much stronger. Yes, yes. I will definitely say that. And because of all the craziness that we've been talking about, that brings us to the next question, which is, um, is there a signature scene or moment that stays with you when you think of Bride of Reanimator? All of them. (laughs) I'm serious. There's not really filler scenes in this. I mean. (laughs) Um, Okay, I guess, um, first off, uh, Dr. Hill returns. (laughs) How? Because you say, like, he was decapitated. Well, they kept the head in evidence, and David Gale's back. And Bruce Campbell has earned his reputation as being incredibly physical, incredibly game, really cool getting beat up on film sets, especially by Sam Raimi. But how can David Gale not be one of the most game actors of all time with what they make him do with Dr. Hill? Um, Especially since he was so much older than Bruce Campbell was when he was doing like the Evil Dead movies. You know, he's drooling blood. He's trying to rape women. They they eventually stick bat wings on the side of his skull. And it's like 110% commitment. So I would say basically the scenes where he's picking on um, Dr. Wilbur Graves. Yes. And almost like if Igor was very intelligent and handsome and kind of (laughs) unwillingly dragged into it, it's kind of that – I don't know. I, I, I just really like that energy. I, I thought it was so strange that normally if uh, that might feel like you're trying to shoehorn uh, that character back in. Mm-hmm. Can you shoehorn ahead? I don't know. Maybe. Um, but I feel like it just added to the crazy bonkers party that this movie ultimately is. So it, I, I think I'll have to give it. Can I say every David Gale scene? Well, sure. That, yeah, okay. no. This, this is up to you. You choose whichever moments you want. Yeah, you got the trophy. <laughs> well, I, 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 I love basically um, any big standout scenes. I mean, of of course, because it it, it was the moment that was in Fangoria was the bride, you know, herself. Yeah, that was my second one. But, but it's it was pretty but, exquisite. It just the, the the whole lighting of the situation, the whole fact that um, that Kinmont is because the feet are of a ballerina. So she's she's always on her tippy toes, basically, um, j- just the way and the arms all... of a waitress and the hands of a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> it's just but but they're going through all the detail and it's just 
it's it's such a feast for the eyes just getting to see you know all the different techniques and everything that's put together i still don't know exactly what he did to the bottom of her face because when he just took her head to put on the rest of the body so i don't know what happened underneath like the chin and and the side gels that he had problems with so i don't know there and then of course jeffrey combs is in this movie and jeffrey combs is great in anything he's in but if i had to choose one moment that that stood out for me um it's his his uh giant uh shouting god's failure speech mm-hmm. that that's what sticks out to me like that's that's one of those moments that whenever hopefully it's not for a very very long time somebody please go and protect him if you need to but whenever jeffrey combs does pass and like there's you know highlight reels that people are showing um those show him eating uh, the person's body from from beyond and then have the speech uh, about God's failures from Bride of Reanimator. I agree with you. Those are great ones. Um, on the Blu-ray, I, I don't know if you watched it, but they have behind-the-scenes footage uh, with the bride, and it's incredible. Uh, again, because, because of the effects, they it was all real. So you there, it's like a little camcorder uh, <laughs> recording uh, Kathleen just being incredible. And it looks real because she actually looks like that. Her organs are exposed. All that complex metal is seared into her flesh. And normally when you see behind the scenes, it, it doesn't seem that effective. It almost seemed like a little kid snuck in and it was like, oh, my God, what's happening here? And like, <laughs> I think it really works on the on those uh uh, 80s and 90s movies where they really push practical effects like those are the films that everybody's like I need to see the behind the scene footage I need to hear from the people how they did it because all these things look so great yeah and I'm so happy that they recorded everything and I guess at the time Screaming Mad George had like a Japanese documentary made at made about him so he had a camera crew there too so thankfully <laughs> everything is very well documented See that's what, that's what I that's what I need. I I just need like four or five Screaming Mad George documentaries. I I think wow. that life would feel empty if you don't have at least that many. Yeah, I mean we we failed so badly the human race. We I feel like that might be like a drop in the bucket we could do in our favor. It it'd be decent. I mean you could probably. Um, you know, do a GoFundMe for something like that, and people would easily throw money at it. Okay. I don't know. I, I mean, it's worth trying. Now, I know this might be a little bit difficult, but we've been talking about the practical effects. We've been talking about, you know, how this works as a sequel. Are there many recent films that you can think of that are reminiscent of Bride of Reanimator or, or the Reanimator series in general? Because horrors moved in kind of a completely different you know, direction and generation, but we're at a point that people are starting to incorporate more um, practical effects in into movies and horror comedy is always something that's evolving. But can you think of something that, that, you know, would fit the mold of a bride of reanimator or reanimator? Well, anything I could say, um, these are pure originals, uh, but yeah, I mean, there we're at the age now where filmmakers, especially genre filmmakers, right now they grew up 
on these specific movies. They see the value in that and they see the value in bringing effects work back. So uh, we are seeing more of that. I think uh, Joe Bagos, uh, Almost Human, channeled some of it. Um, I also think uh, recently from uh, there's Daniel Isn't Real, which uh, it, it's not quite as madcap, but I think it it kind of takes that risk that was inspired by films like this, where um, I do think it is daring to try to be funny when you're showing people being eviscerated. Yeah. Because it's so hard to pull off. <laughs> and I do like the trend of funny people being gruesome lately. <laughs> so how about you? Because you probably know more than me. Uh, no, I, mean, I have I mean, a terrible memory. <laughs> Not, not, not necessarily because it, I mean it's such a it's such a narrow field and the the I I'm not sure what it was about the 80s and 90s when it came to horror comedies that you had so many of them that were coming out and succeeding. When you look at it nowadays, you have lots of people who are trying because they grew up, like you said, they grew up with these movies and and they grew up adoring these movies, and it's so easy for people to fall into the trap of I think I'm funny. So I think this is funny and they try too hard to push, you know, a certain level of humor that can sometimes be alienating. So when you do have a successful horror comedy, it's it's rare these days. I, I think you can move a little bit out of the horror comedy element and look at something like even though it's not directly the same, but how it handles it, it's something like uh, Upgrade was what came to, to mind from oh. Lee Whannell and like how it's handling, you know, people being you just gruesomely killed and destroyed but but the sense of humor that you have going with it and the fact that you know he's kind of chomping into each scenery it might not be completely as madcap as jeffrey combs gets in this but you're you're getting you know an actor who's willing to go that distance and you know to add the humor in those scenes where you've just got blood pouring all over the place yeah that's a great point uh has it felt like Body horror has becoming has become a little more in vogue lately. Yeah, I definitely think within like the last couple of years, we've seen a push back for it. I don't, I'm not sure if I'd necessarily say in like a, a comedic way, but you do have lots of people who are who are looking at body horror. Like, did you? I can't remember if we talked about it, but you saw Swallow, right? No, not yet. Oh, I was going to see it in <clears throat> South by, but. It's a swallow. Unfortunately, isn't really a comedy. You you'd say because of I how serious really the like subject matter. Okay. Well, I know. Well, no, 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 no. But I, I was saying in comparison to to Bride of Reanimator, since right. that's a big a big key of why the film works is the sense of humor that it has in such a dark situation. But um, swallow is exceptionally good when it comes to to body horror, but it's more grounded and of course realistic because of the. Um, the, the situation and the I don't know why my brain is futzing on what the terms called on on the disorder um, that people have when it comes to uh, wanting to swallow um, you know certain items inanimate objects basically but but it definitely you know goes that route of bringing body horror back you've got several movies in the last handful of years that you know have been doing that um, there's never been a point really where Lovecraft films 
uh, haven't been around because even at like the bottom lowest tier of filmmaking with like no budget, you have people who are trying to uh, to do that. I mean, of course, you had the void several years ago that was, you know, playing with the, yeah. the, the Lovecraft element to it. But it, I, you don't really have that fusion of like, you know, the Lovecraft the body horror, the splatter horror, and the comedy quite in the way that you did with these, it feels like. No, I think Color Out of Space was pretty close, and it did have its funny moments. Yeah. But you can it, it wasn't pushing slapstick or anything. No, no. But it was good, too. I really liked it. Oh, I love it, yeah. Okay, so the last question, which is very open-ended and and so it can go any number of ways, you know, it doesn't have to feel like just a yes, because we're constantly reevaluating movies. If you're somebody who has, you know, certain handful of movies that you love each year or at different times, you know, when there are, you know, uh, an an actor, writer, director passes away, people are watching these films all the time, but having rewatched Bride of Reanimator again, do you think it's still worthy of the reverence that people have held it up for the last several decades? Or do you think it's starting to get into the point where that, that shine is slowly kind of uh, being brushed off it? Well, I don't really feel like it's received a lot of reverence. Uh, It certainly has its fans, of course, but boy, you hear about it maybe 10% as much as you do about reanimator. Um, But (laughs) I'm not here to argue with you. Um, I will say, yes, I've seen this film. I tend to revisit it maybe every five years, mm-hmm. um, a little bit more often since I received the Blu-ray. Um, and yeah, every single time it shocks me. I find little moments. I love the character work. Um, of course, Jeffrey Combs is one of our greatest character actors and he's completely unbridled here. And, there's just something very timeless about how fearless his performance is. Um, no, I, I think it has, it also strangely has a lot of heart to it, mainly centered around uh, Dan's character. And um, I, I don't know. I think there's just so much messy talent and sincerity in it. it it's aging for the better for me personally. I think those the the little bits that it has strewn throughout, the more that you watch it, the more you grow to appreciate it or just like the weird direction that it goes. I mean, we didn't really talk about uh, the detective, but that detective, he's got to be like one of the most dogged detectives that I can think, because usually the level that he's going to in this with it being eight months after the massacre is the point that like most people would be taking off of cases. But he he's going at it full hog and and he's a whole another element to to the film that when I was watching it I was like when he first showed up I was like oh that's right this guy has his whole crazy storyline that you get that you don't really see as a tangent in most films these days right because he's guilt-ridden because he did cause the death of his wife but now where's her corpse what's being done to it like she was supposed to be dead and she's not and he's when after a fight, he becomes reanimated, and he's one of the most disgusting ones. Uh, he has a terrible scene uh, with Francesca's character, who uh, gets romantically involved with uh, Dan. And he, he uh, yeah, 
he's terrible. And I mean, the actor did a fantastic job, but the yeah. character, uh, you go from kind of being on his side, like, oh, this, he's for justice and his family. And you find out he's just a creep in a completely different way. And that, that's kind of fun uh, to see. <laughs> Like no one's wholly innocent on either side and no one's wholly evil. Uh, you just have people doing disgusting things clashing with each other. <laughs> well, I, I think I think Dr. Hill might be uh, fully evil at this point. Oh, no, I, was, I just meant between uh, him and his investigation and the reanimator oh, okay. boys. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the poor reanimator boys where Dan is so... Um, sensitive and um, thrown for a loop with everything that's happening that he's allowed allowing himself to be manipulated because I mean th there's the scene where Herbert just has the heart in the fridge and he's like what did you love about Meg it wasn't yeah. her body it was her heart and just he's getting ready to leave and he's like wait you have her heart oh I'm back in this this should be fantastic and then five minutes later he's with um, Francesca and sleeping with her and then when she's like trying to help save his life he's like no it's her yeah no i i have full sympathy for dan in the original and this one he gets on my nerves a little bit because he's so <laughs> wish you are it's basically whatever woman's directly in front of him is where his loyalties lie or woman's bar body part or organ whatever works it's just <laughs> He's like a cat with a shiny object. And at this point, I'm always like, yeah, West, if you got to use this idiot, fine. Just like manipulate him. He... I mean, I, I... I know grief, it can make you make bad decisions, but you almost just want to give him a good slap and like a share snap out of it. And... <laughs> or just slap him with the eyeball hand. Oh, that's a great idea. You got you to gotta see it. But I'm... Like at the be every time I forget about a little pieces of uh, the Peruvian uh, Civil War opening, like the fact that that Dan gets stabbed, and for a second there's always a moment where I'm like, wait, Dan? They don't use the reagent on Dan, and like that's that explains all the weird decisions he's making for the rest of the movie, is it? And then two seconds later, Herbert leans down and he goes, "Oh, you're going to be fine," and then it cuts straight to the opening. It's like, oh well. For, forgot that he said that there goes my interesting idea that was stuck in my head yeah it, it it's a very jolting kind of oh we're oh 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 like oh is brad vanmeyer gonna be like a period war movie oh a modern <laughs> war movie okay oh no oh they didn't have the budget for that did they okay we're back at the hospital okay cool wait is is <laughs> that the girl from summer school and the first austin powers movie She's great, by the way. Uh, sometimes you can tell some actresses would get quickly hired for splatter movies because they were attractive. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's stunning. But I, I feel like she completely bought in and also understood the tone of this film. Um, just as much as Kathleen Kinmont did. I've, yes. I think she's one of the great monsters of modern horror movies. She has the screams down, so much emotion in her eyes. And mm -hmm. that's a lot, of, a lot of appliance and latex to act through. And I think she just killed it. And then just the whole reaching in, grabbing the heart and oh, putting it out. And, and then just rearing her head back as she yells, is this what you want? 
that's high up there on best scene. <laughs> well, especially when you're comparing it to her character in Halloween Four. Oh, which I always do. <laughs> <laughs> What'd she do in Halloween Four again? Like eat a sandwich or something? Okay. Yeah, and and not wear <laughs> pants and have a giant sweater on. Oh, we remember different things. That's fine. Well, no, because there, because <laughs> it's the whole. Well, I mean, it's not. A, it's because it's a famous image, but she's like at first you're like, oh, she's kind of bitchy. But then later on, she seems like she feels regretful for trying to steal somebody's boyfriend. And it's like that doesn't. First of all, let's kind of put this aside because there's a psycho killer who's on the loose. Save your apologies for the next day. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like you you know what's going on in this town. You should probably just play it cool and stay at home on Halloween. If you're going to be sleeping with somebody's, you know, other, maybe do that another night than this. Especially if you, you know, have connections to the town's sheriff part uh, department. Yeah. <laughs> too much thought? Too much thought into it? Okay. No, sorry. I'm just, uh, I, I wasn't prepared for the Halloween, the Halloween 4 deep dive and... I, I, I felt like I couldn't match your energy and I felt bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. That's that's usually how it comes with me and, and, and Halloween 4 is that all of a sudden I get really passionate about it and everyone else is like, but it's it's Halloween 4. No, that, that's one of my favorites of this series. I get it. <laughs> uh, but d- can you admit that you she has a better performance in Bride? Oh, yeah, because she's def- – I mean, it's weird. Most would say that she's given less to do because she's technically a monster here, but she actually – she does yeah, more with Yeah, in the hospital bed it. and then a monster. Yeah, well, I mean, she's dying for a little bit. But then when she's the monster, there's – as you were mentioning, there's so much emotion that she's putting into it. Just the way at first when she's standing, like how close and kind of scared she's standing next to Dan right before, you know, Herbert comes over into the room. And that there's just a huge – range of emotions that that she's going through in the few scenes that she has as the monster but it elevates the performance so that you you think about the monster um and just everything that she's going through and then when you know she's fighting with francesca and just everything that's going on that in the short amount of screen time that it's there there's a whole bunch that's going on uh, w- with that character, with that version of it because of course at the same time I was mentioning that I had just seen Frankenhooker recently, and you compare, you know, that version of, of the bride or, or Frankenstein, however you want to look at it. And that she, for the most part, when she first comes back is, you know, reduced to the, um, the prostitutes that have been, you know, stitched together. Whereas because she has Meg's heart, because she has a glorious head, there, there's a lot more to this character and, and bride of reanimator and that, she does so much that I feel like it's kind of one of those performances that goes under the radar. Oh, I agree. And that happens with a lot of people who play monsters or have to wear a lot of things obscuring uh, what they actually look like. Cause we kind of take it for granted that that's easy and there's no way it's remotely easy, especially if you're not given a lot of dialogue to work with. Um, I get, I, you know, you think of Bride of Frankenstein, they let Elsa Lanchester do the little Mary Shelley add on they had to add at the beginning. And I wonder if they could have done that with, um, Kathleen playing like Lovecraft 
<laughs> I feel like introducing the story just to give her a little bit more screen time, but that probably would have been a little too strange and on the nose. They just give her a scene where she's randomly racist for no reason. Mm. I'm sorry. Yeah, why not? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, but I I think okay. Here's here's a question that I have with you since we're talking about her because it it hit me the connection. I don't know why it didn't at first, but of course the other big i think it's more unheralded than this movie when it comes to people who are re-watching it uh when it comes to brian uh yuzna is uh return of the living dead three mm-hmm. because you have another female uh performance in there who's got a whole bunch of um you know prosthetics and everything that's that's having to do lots of emotions and and various different levels in that film Oh, yeah, there's a lot of parallels. And I've always been a big fan of Return to Living Dead. And again, uh, her how um, she looks in that film, how Melinda Clark's character looks in that film, it's supposed to shock you. And you're supposed to see her attractiveness, of course, but it's supposed to look horrific and scary. Um, but then they still show her vulnerability. And a lot like the bride performance here, like giant watering eyes that there's no way the camera is allowing you to look away from them. And he, that's a great point. He really has women uh, playing kind of multidimensional monsters, which they don't often get the chance to do. I think it's, it's also a sad stereotype that there's certain phrases, of course, and and being somebody who writes and does podcasts about um, lots of horror movies, you, you could probably speak to this better than me, but but there's certain phrases that people put together that over time seems like they kind of have a negative connotation to them that we wanted to give people special titles to to signify like the great work that they were doing. And so like I definitely think that Kinmont in this film, you know, fits the screen queen model, which when people say that they, they sometimes have a negative connotation. But I think that when you mention like any of those major Screen queens are people who are bringing something special uh, to the role that nowadays you don't have that term thrown out as much because sometimes the characters aren't being asked to do a lot. Whereas, you know, these women in horror were, were bringing uh, either a lot to nothing roles or were bringing something special in a field that that people, you know, usually wouldn't give lots of credence to the work that's being done. It reminds me of one of my favorite Futurama quotes. Which is, if you do something right, no one will know you did anything at all. That works. That works. But but how do you how do you feel about that moniker? Do you, do you think that we don't really give enough attention to these actresses, or or we don't necessarily talk about the the great things that they did with characters in this field? Um, do you just mean horror actresses in general? Yeah, well, specifically when it comes to people using the moniker of Scream Queen for somebody. Well, it's so funny because um, probably less so today, more so about 20 years ago, but people seem to use that term differently. For some people, it's derisive, and a lot of actresses did not want that attached to them, even if they found success doing horror films, because they didn't only want to do horror films. Mm -hmm. And for some, yeah... They probably truly loved the genre and never quite got the attention your Jamie Lee Curtis's or Barbara Crampton's did. Um, so it's hard uh, because it seems to be very personal 
to the actress on if they would enjoy having that title, even if it was given to them. And it also is very based on trends and who's the hot new actor at the time and how popular the phrase is, because it, it seems to be kind of an ebb and flow phrase. But it's actually a little hard uh, to answer. Um, there's definitely a lot of fantastic actresses uh, who didn't get the credit they deserved uh, monetarily or critically. Um, but yeah, with that phrase specifically, it's, uh, it's loaded down with a lot of different things. So it's hard to say. Well, which I mean is un- unfortunate because like, cause for, for years I'll, I'll admit that I didn't necessarily know of the negative connotation of people not wanting to do it. Cause from my understanding, or, or at least the the standpoint that I was viewing it for years, and, and I could be completely wrong and just experience it in the wrong way, is that it, it was people who were kind of like the the titans of of the genre for for many years. You know, the people who stood out because of their performances, because of of the craft that they put into it, that they became these icons, as opposed to you know, here's somebody who got killed. In, in this movie, that that it was going to people who who elevated uh, performances and rules when it came to horror between like the seventies and, and late nineties. Yeah, and then they had that VH1 reality show called Scream Queen, and apparently oh. you're a scream queen, queen no matter what you did. Which which is un- unfortunate, and like I it it always makes me a little bit sad that the horror genre is always kind of put on, on that level, you know, that it's always the other, that it's always kind of the, the outsider and like the things that they normally try to gravitate to when it comes to that, isn't always the most positive things to show the best side of horror. Yeah. That's another thing that's hard. Cause sometimes I, I do like that. It, it's kind of the grubby outsider, even though <laughs> It tells brilliant stories every year and, you know, great art and emotion has come from horror films constantly. Um, you know, it, it doesn't seem to matter to a point because even like right now, horror is hot, both mm-hmm. in just regular popularity, but critic wise, too, which is great. Um, but it's still being othered. It's still like, isn't it crazy that there's good horror movies now? <laughs> and, you know, the rest of us are like, no, they're always there. But, yeah, it's true. Even when they are uh, getting their due and getting great notices, it's still like, whoa, isn't that weird? Like the 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 goth kid no one talks to, man, one prom king. That's crazy. <laughs> And then, and then you just push all those people to the side and you say, just just stop talking and just watch the movie. <laughs> That's all you can do. <laughs> well, since we're at a point where lots of people are going to be listening to this and going to be at home for, you know, the next couple of weeks, the foreseeable future, we're not we're not sure exactly. But you mentioned that the you know that people are saying oh horror is a big thing right now. Can you think of like three titles that you would suggest to people to check out that they might not normally know of? They don't have to be new. They don't have to be old. They can be whatever comes off the top of your head that that you think are horror films that more people should put their eyeballs on. Okay. Uh, do you want streaming ones or? 
Um, Maybe let's, let's, let's go for a mix. Okay. Hmm. Um, well, in honor of Stuart Gordon, this isn't, this would probably get labeled a thriller more often, but I recommend Stuck, uh, and which is also on Tubi Tubby, whichever you prefer right now. It's the last film he made. It is incredibly tense. Um, and it definitely deserved much more notice uh, than it got. It kind of blew my mind, and I felt bad about not seeing it until right now. Um, <laughs> I can name old ones, right? Yeah, that, that's what I said. You you can do okay. anything from uh, from any any point in time. I, I I would like to second that. Stuck is is a great choice. Um, I don't think enough people saw it. Um, but I mean, it's got Stephen Rea and it's got, oh God, why do I always, uh, Russell Hornsby? That's his name, right? I am of no help here. I'm okay. sorry. I'm, I'm trying to check IMDb at the same time. Yes. Russell Hornsby, who people would know from, uh, Fences and The Hate You Give, or if they're giant dorks like me, uh, then they saw him on Grimm. All right, that's a double recommendation for you kids out there. Yeah. And I'm very late <laughs> to the party with this one, but I finally saw uh, The Sentinel from 1977. Um, oh, yeah, it was just incredible. Uh, I love that one. So if you're like me, and it's kind of one of those giant, looming uh, horror titles that you haven't quite gotten around to yet, even though you know about it. Ooh, is is just so stylish and strange and sexy, but cold and weird. And the cast just blew me away. Oh my god! Um, so, I mean, it has everybody. It when the the credits were rolling at the beginning, it almost I thought it was like a parody that they're just naming every actor they could think <laughs> of. <laughs> and I had to remind myself, no, holy crap! All of those people are going to show up. It's and, it's also probably a more evil one to suggest right now since it is, you know, set within uh, an apartment building and <laughs> the the tenants of an apartment building. So there's probably some soul who's going to going to watch this and then like in the middle of it, like have to go take out the trash or something and just be like staring up at the other apartments <laughs> around him like, is this building OK? Well, honestly, they're probably going to end up doing that anyway, so you might as well get a great movie out of it. And what's your third choice? Oh, my third choice. Um, Oh, this one is a big one from just a few years ago I missed out on, which is Overlord, uh, the war vampire movie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but you know what? It has uh, people getting stuck with like, uh, well, it's not really vampire, but like super agent uh, Nazis getting twisted into horrific things. Uh, boy, I, I am great at describing movies. But anyway, it's on Hulu right now. It's a blast. And of course, I mean, you, you could easily, uh, of course, it, it just count my mind works when it comes to Overlord. I'd be like, it's got White Russell. And if, if you're you if you're not going to watch a Kurt Russell film, then then watch a movie that has his son playing a Kurt Russell role. Um, the weirdest piece of trivia that I know about that movie um, is that uh, so there's the 
we won't get into spoilers or anything, but all I'll say is, of course, that movie has the lady who's in the other room. In, in Overlord, that there's the there's the people that the soldiers are are banding with, and there's a room at the end of the hallway where the the aunt or whoever who's very sickly is staying. Right. And she was played by Meg Foster. Really? Yes, because I because I saw it at when they premiered it at Fantastic Fest a couple of years ago. And because they always have Q&As after the majority of the movies, you know, everybody's sticking around and they've got the credits rolling. And me and a couple other people were watching, trying to find out who another actor was. And all of a sudden we saw Meg Foster and we're like, Meg Foster? What? Yeah. And so we we saw that, you know, it said blah, 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 ants. And we were like, okay. We went on to IMDb and we saw that it was the Meg Foster. And we're like, you don't see her or, or anything, but. They somehow got Meg Foster in the movie, and they somehow didn't decide to show Meg Foster's eyes. I was like, really? Right. <laughs> Even if she's just peering from under the blanket. It doesn't matter. And then goes back show. under. Exactly. Be like, they got Meg Foster. There you go. Whereas you're watching the credits, you're like, where was where was, where was was Meg Foster in the movie? That was really good trivia. There you go. That's... That's what I'm. I'm here for. But no, I think those are great options because they're they're three uh, varied films. Uh, they all kind of have a level of paranoia um, that's key to them, but not a paranoia in a way that it's like, hey, you should watch Contagion. Yeah, no, I would. I wouldn't. I wouldn't suggest a Gwyneth Paltrow film, <laughs> even if it's good. I have moral standards, and I will not. <laughs> Hey, you guys like the new Emma movie, right? You know what film you should also see? Not that bullshit one with Gwyneth Paltrow. No, go watch Clueless. Thank you. Beautiful. Exactly how I would have done it. <laughs> well, Stephanie, where can people find you online? Uh, the easiest place is Twitter, where I'm scrawfish on it. <laughs> and... Uh, I post what I do, and I also have my blog link there. And I, every, every podcast, everything I write, it goes right on there. So there you go. And and of course, you mentioned that uh, you can find your your writing at many different sites and many different podcasts. Just in case people, for some reason, weren't paying attention at the beginning, please let them know where they can easily find your work. Well, it's all on my blog. I link everything there, so it's in one okay. place. I'm but fine. <laughs> Bloody Disgusting and uh, Daily Grindhouse and Dread Central and Fangoria. Is is there anything uh, podcasting-wise or writing-wise that you definitely think that people should check out that you've done? No, me? Oh, no. Okay, I'm just trying to... <laughs> this is the point where, where you're supposed to help plug and promote everyone. I mean, they, Okay, well, my I'm co-hosts on the Screamcast are terrific, so please <laughs> tune in for them. And uh, if you are interested in Blu-rays, I love being on Just the Discs and where we get to talk about the movie and the Blu-ray releases. So if that interests you, please check that out as well. I think I've done 16 of those by now. So. And and since I have to throw, um, it's not really shade, but I guess it'd be slight shade. Since people have time and they're going to be burning through podcasts and everything, do you think that they should spend their time listening to a, a couple times that you you guested on the SOVPOD? Oh, definitely, <laughs> especially the episode where um, 
Brad couldn't do it. So Mike said, hey, be Brad Henderson. There's an episode out there <laughs> pretending to be Brad Henderson. That's that's uh that was part of the reason why I wanted to give that shout out. People are gonna have time. They're gonna be burning through content. So I always like thinking of something left of center that people could do. And then there was the the parking lot one, right? Oh, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Where you guys had entire episodes that were dedicated to minute by minute. Minute by minute episode. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, we we recorded that when Mike was in his car. And he said, let's start out by us eating Taco Bell while we try to talk and introduce it. So I went to Taco Bell. <laughs> and we started recording. I was just crunching into the mic until I realized he didn't do it. So I stopped. <laughs> and then afterwards, I'm like, what happened to the Taco Bell? He's like, oh, yeah, I changed my mind. So... That sounds. That's if you guys don't know what what she's referencing or talking about, then definitely give a chance and listen to the Screamcast. And then I don't, I don't know if they have any recent because it's very sporadic. But it doesn't matter. Take some time and listen to the S O V P O D. The T H E start uh, stands for the. I had to get it in there just in case Yay. Mike for some reason <laughs> happened to listen to it and be like, "You son of a bitch! You had one job." <laughs> so. But uh, you can easily find me on Twitter at Yo Adrian Torse. Uh, the handle for uh, the podcast itself is at Horrorversary. Uh, you can find us basically everywhere. For we were on Spotify recently and then somehow disappeared. So I'm trying to figure that out. But we're on um, Apple Podcast. We're on uh, Stitcher. We're on Google Podcast. Whatever you choose, you can basically put in either Horrorversary. Or put in Boom Howdy and you'll find Horrorversary through there. Stephanie, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It, it, it meant a lot to get to talk with any movie with you in general because you're usually a wealth of knowledge and have fantastic opinions on films in general. Oh, thank you so much. You're a wonderful host. And I think we've been trying to do something podcasting-wise for a few years now. So it would I'm make sense. It finally worked it out. <laughs> Since since the day that I finally met you in person last year, uh, thanks to and I have to give a shout out to this person because they'll probably listen since it's it's a podcast that I'm doing and you're on it was that I'll never forget. Um, I was sad this year for not going to South by Southwest because for the last several years, as almost a running joke, I have always run into Rob Dean as the first person that I always see at South by Southwest. Oh. <laughs> and and that's how I actually got to, to to meet Steph because Rob happened to be right there with her, and so it it worked out. But yeah, every every year that I've been to South by Southwest, um, Rob is the first person that I see. So it's it's always that's a nice a little omen. thing. It's showing up and going. So like not getting to go this year, I'm like, oh, I haven't had my my random walk around a corner, and there's Rob Dean. <laughs> it's the first person I see. Fix so. Oh. It is what it is. It is indeed what it is. Exactly. Thank Good night, you. everybody. <laughs> that works. That works. And until next time, everybody, especially now with everything that's going on, stay healthy and be nice to each other.